Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. I'm Margaret Chowning uh, in the History Department, Chair of the Moses Lectureship Committee. We're pleased, along with the Graduate Division, to present Jean Lave, this year's speaker in the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we are obligated and are pleased to tell you how the endowment supporting the lectures came to UC Berkeley. In 1937, University of California President Robert Gordon Sproul and the UC Board of Regents established the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences. The lectureship honors the memory of the late Bernard Moses, a professor of history and political science at the University of California from 1875 to 1911, and an emeritus professor from 1911 until his death in 1930. Professor Moses earned a worldwide reputation for his contributions to understanding the problems of the Latin American republics. Uh, I can attest to that, since I am also a Latin American historian. And as a pioneer scholar, Professor Moses served as a member of the United States Philippine Commission from 1900 to 1904. Past lecturers have included Herma Hill Kay, Lloyd Ullman, Nicholas Riosanovsky, George Lakoff, Kenneth Stamp, Eugene Hamill, Ken Jowett, and Mar uh, Carolyn Merchant. Now I'd like to say a few words about today's lecturer, Jean Lave. Jean Lave is renowned for her social, historical, and relational anthropology of learning in critical counterpoint to conventional psychological views. Lave's ethnographic studies of apprenticeship among Vai and Gola tailors in Liberia in the 1970s, of everyday math practices in Orange County, California in the 1980s, and of processes of becoming British in Portugal in the 1990s, have led her to inquire into the complex theoretical implications that follow from claims for the socially, historically situated character of all learning. Jean Lave received her PhD in social anthropology from Harvard University in 1968 and taught in the School of Social Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, before joining the UC Berkeley faculty in 1989. She is Professor Emerita of the Graduate School of Education, Social and Cultural Studies, and currently has affiliate professorships in the Departments of Geography, Anthropology, and the Energy Resources Group. Lave was the first recipient of the prestigious Spencer Foundation Senior Fellowship in 1989. She was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences 2001. The American Anthropolo Anthropological Association award awarded her the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Council on Anthropology and Education in 2008. She received an honorary doctorate in 2008 from Aarhus University in Denmark. Please join me in welcoming Professor Jean Lave. Thank you. Jean. I want to thank Margaret Chowning for that nice introduction. Thank uh, Ellen Gobbler for the work that it has taken to make this come off with all appearance of smoothness and ease. And to the prize committee, uh, whose uh, who's, uh, uh, decisions may be
be misguided, but whose efforts were large and long, I am sure, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I'm very happy that to be here, and I'm very happy and thankful that you're here, too. So, I've written several books. Each one felt as if it were the preamble, the introduction to the one before. I see that you recognize this feeling. Good. That's what this talk is all about. In each case, it was through working on a research and writing project that I found out what I wish I would have understood before. And that is not unlike what apprentice tailors in Liberia and artisans in many other crafts experience as well. It's extremely common that you begin to learn craft production processes from the end rather than from the beginning. And you progress step by step backwards. So Vi Angola apprentices hem trouser cuffs and they sew buttons on finished garments and in the process they spend a lot of time handling the and getting familiar with the garments that they're about to learn to to make uh, uh event next going backwards a step they learn to sew those garments and thereby come to see why as well as how the pieces are cut out the way they are. And eventually they learn to cut them out. At the same time, whatever part of garment making they are engaged in, they always do from start to finish. So one way to think about the surprisingly complex and contradictory and multi-directional character of learning is that we are always learning what we are already doing. That makes us apprentices to our own changing practice. I want to amble, or maybe we could call it preambling <laughs> today, through an account of how it is that many long, slow years of ethnographic fieldwork and social theoretical inquiry shaped each other in my work and life. And in the course of all of this, my conception of apprenticeship, learning, and research practice have changed. A place to begin is, I, I just want to start uh, since I'm going to talk, I, I'm, I've tried to establish already that I think apprenticeship is a very important uh, 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 cup to hold on to that I, for me is filled, and I'm going to try and fill it for you with uh, different ways of understanding learning. So I want to start with common sense notions of apprenticeship. apprenticeship. I run into them whenever I talk about learning or when I talk about this stuff. And uh, from experience, I can, they can be pretty easily summarized. I would say that for most of us, when we don't stop to think, apprenticeship is an anachronistic form of education. 
associated with a pre-capitalist form of craft production, low-tech, mostly manual labor. We might also say that apprenticeship uh, is an educational vehicle to turn young people into master carpenters or other sorts of artisans. If it is still in practice in today's world, question? We assume apprenticeship is associated with impoverished workshops in third world countries operating probably in the informal economy. When talking about apprenticeship in educational terms, I think we easily assume that masters, well, they're teachers, they're the teachers, and apprentices are the pupils. But apprentices are not likely to be given lessons or explanations or examinations. After all, everyone in a craft shop is there to work. And apprenticeship is informal education, not school. So whatever apprentices learn can surely only be specific embodied practices useful only in the immediate context of craft work. So why? If apprenticeship as an educational practice is out of date and a lousy form of education to boot, would you want to make long-term practices of learning a craft one's own long-term object of scholarly attention? For that matter, learning is what psychologists and educational theorists are supposed to think about. How has learning become an interdisciplinary focus for anthropological research? Mostly, I'm going to discuss my own efforts to address these questions uh, and also to stir them up some. But ethnographic studies of craft, apprentice, of craft practice have provided rich resources of imagination and practice for critical social research more broadly. And before I start talking about my own stuff, I want to at least point to a couple of those. For example, anthropologist Tim Ingold's ethnographic and theoretical work has been focused for years on the interface between evolutionary biology and anthropology. In his view, quote, it is not genetic, individual, internally programmed material on which some natural evolutionary process operates, but rather change is imminent in developmental processes. You catch a, a, a connection possibly to something like apprenticeship. Change is imminent in developmental processes across persons, practices, and lifetimes. He argues that although neo-Darwinian biology, cognitive science, and psycholinguistics have conspired to produce an extremely powerful approach to understanding the relations in human evolution between technology, language, and intelligence, he wants to make a radically alternative claim. Suppose we set ourselves the task of examining the relation in human evolution, not between technology, language, and intelligence, but between craftsmanship, song, and imagination. The resulting account, he suspects, 
would be very different. Uh, as properties of persons, this is, this is him again, as properties of persons developed in the contexts of their engagements with other persons or person-like agencies in the environment, technical skills are themselves constituted within the matrix of social relations. Hence, insofar as they involve the use of tools, these must be understood as links in chains of personal rather than mechanical causation serving to draw components of the environment into the sphere of social relations rather than to emancipate human society from the constraints of nature. Sociologist Richard Sennett begins his 2008 book called Craftsmanship. Thus, I owe a peculiar debt to the philosopher Richard Foley, he begins, at a point when I was stuck in my work, he asked me, what is your guiding intuition? I want to ask somebody that sometime, don't you? <laughs> what is your guiding intuition? Um, I replied on the spur of the moment, making is thinking. He argues, Senate argues, that we need to turn a fresh page. We can do that so simply by asking though the answers are anything but simple, what the process of making concrete things reveals to us about ourselves. All right, so with just those two examples, I would say that in Gold and Senate and myself, we're a bunch of critical contrarians who explore learning as embodied practice Refuse to separate knowledge from processes of knowledge production from processes of producing knowledgeably skilled practitioners. And we think that all of these relations are made in po the political, economic, and historical relations of which they are a part. That's a tall order. If you do not treat apprenticeship as a thing in itself, nor learning as a thing in itself, how do you go about inquiring into them? My late colleague, Steinar Kvala, argued that there is an intrinsic coherence between conceptions of research and research training and of theories of knowledge and learning. His point was that there is fit and resonance, and there are iterative and generative relations between practices of research, research training, knowledge, and learning. They are closely interrelated parts of any theoretical problematic. That's a table I've sort of uh, from Steinar Kvala's work. Give you a chance to look at it. Steiner helps us to see how different assumptions position research on apprenticeship differently. He illustrated his argument by contrasting two clusters of relations. One he called bureaucratic and the other pragmatic. I don't know if I can, there, see? Those there and those there. And notice over here is the, the things I'm saying 
uh, or I'm talking about their relations, right? Okay. Steiner wrote a whole lot about how changing fashions in psychological theory were part of changing sociocultural fashions more generally. He argued that there were important distinctions between a coherent set of modernist bureaucratic cultural relations, that's the first column, and a set of postmodern cultural relations, the second column, among concepts and practices of knowledge, research, and learning. That is, reading down the first column, he argued that there is a close relation between theories of technical rational learning based on schooling and a notion of research method as itself, a technical rational set of procedures for surveying, counting, and experimenting on the world. The second column reflected actually his own views of how he thought about his own research, qualitative and he that view here is the notion of qualitative research as craft, arguing that he, a sustained exploration of relations up and down that second column addressed relations of university training as apprenticeship, the qualitative interview, and training for qualitative interviewing as craft and art, necessary because of the situated character of knowing and doing. He explored graduate education as apprenticeship, drawing on the biographies of Nobel laureates. Uh, for the graduate students in the room, that should give you courage to <laughs> continue onward. I know that many of our colleagues would say, they have said, <laughs> okay, there are these two different approaches. One is about school and formal knowledge. One is about everyday life and craft apprenticeship. Sure, they're different. They're just different. You can concentrate on one or the other. That's a matter of choice and perhaps evidence about your good judgment or lack thereof. Um, but I disagree with this view and indeed with Steinar's analysis that current interest in that second column was a manifestation of the postmodern turn, a cluster of research interests that might fit the inclinations of some scholars and not others. Rather than looking at them separately, I see in this two-column arrangement another possibility, a single, co familiar, coherent, theoretical problematic, a conventional arrangement of binary distinctions. This is simply the same things in the first the first table, but shown in a way to try and emphasize the fact that, in fact, we're talking about a set of binary polar opposites. This perspective ties the two columns together into a single dualistic theory of formal and informal education, formal and informal learning. This is a divide we can recognize as cemented in disciplinary boundaries, theoretical problematics, and politics with respect to education and research. The two columns are not equal in value or prior priority in theory or practice in the world in which we live today. The left-hand column features basic commitments of classical philosophy of mind and psychologies of learning. 
It encompasses the standard hegemonic schoolish view, which we inhabit for the most part, and in the name of which we do much of what we do as scholars and teachers and, and uh, alumni of 10,000 hours of schooling, each of us. <laughs> From a common sense dualist perspective, the second column looks like a peripheral, subsidiary, even trivial facet of the mainstream set of issues. These two tables locate apprenticeship in quite different relations of learning and research. What you think apprenticeship is, what, quest what questions you'd ask about it, and your reasons for doing so would depend on whether you understand the two columns as just two different theoretical fashions for describing the same thing, same state of affairs, or a single binary problematic in which the second column is taken to be only a part of the polarized relations in the scheme as a whole. If you assume the binary theory is in fact uh, what is the general state of affairs with which we live, but you wish to take a critical stance with respect to the uncritical dominance of the formal educational perspective, it should be clear, I think, that it is not enough to just jump over to the other column, join a bandwagon for apprenticeship, and demand that it be given more attention and treated with more respect. Apprenticeship is unchanged as an informal junior partner to formal education uh, uh, in such, if that's the effort one makes. A serious alternative to the binary theory would need to pursue an understanding of learning and research that treat the underlying theoretical polarized binary theory as the real challenge. My response to that challenge these days lies in theory of praxis or social practice theory, this notion of a historical, relational, theoretical perspective. And I'll try to say briefly later what relations of apprenticeship might look like in this sort of a theory. But first we need to get there. When I started out to investigate these issues, I had no theoretical clarity, nothing except an anthropologist's general resistance to those ethnocentric assumptions underlying cross-cultural claims about how uh, uh, people in Africa ought to think and uh, learn and, uh, differently uh, than folks in the West, and uh, that, uh, in a way, inferior to how people in the West perform on various kinds of cognitive experiments. And one of the kinds of rationales that was built deeply into this uh, genre of research was the idea that schooling offered the explanation for why people in the West would be so much superior to any other you'd care to name. The way these got put, I'll never forget it, uh, reading uh, a, a, an article that's uh, talking about the notion that um, the assumption was that if the uh, 
African kids had been to school, they would perform better than if they were uneducated. Uneducated. This last characterization of a world of culture, history, it made me furiously indignant at the colonialist, ethnocentric, school-centric assumptions of cross-cultural psychological research and much other sociological research at that time and since. And I've been indignant ever since. Just in case that wasn't already clear. (laughs) Thank you. So I went to Liberia. Just in case you're not too clear. Um, That there is West Africa, and that there is Liberia, right? And Monrovia, its capital, is there. So I went to Liberia looking for a complex local educational practice, and I found craft apprenticeship, indigenous for hundreds of years over much of West Africa. The Taylor's Apprenticeship in Taylor's Alley in Monrovia offered a strategic case with which to explore anthropologists' debates with psychologists over forms of thought and forms of education. How? How was it strategic? What, what good was it in these to try and make this uh, ethnographic research in Liberia on apprenticeship part of the debates, speak to them? Well, strategic considerations did shape the method that characterized my research. And I'll tell it to you like a recipe. (laughs) Take a negatively valued residual abstraction, such as apprenticeship, or even more abstractly, informal education. Find its putative home, as in Liberian tailor shops. Ethnographic research then provides a basis for the vivid furnishing of uh, uh, aspects of this exemplar of informal education, and this provides a basis for disputing the natural character, natural character of polarized distinctions between formal and informal education, or formal and informal economy, or context-free versus context-bound knowledge, or cognitive power and the lack thereof, and claims that such distinctions are politically neutral. That's downtown Monrovia, and uh, uh, the, the broad street, the main commercial street is there. It's a very small, was a very small town at the time. If you went down Water Street to the teeny little alley right on the river, uh, it says here, Happy Corner. Um, That's because, I'll I'll explain in a minute, but that's where the Taylor's Alley was, where I went and did this research. I spent parts of five years in Monrovia in an impoverished mud-pathed alley at the edge of the downtown commercial district lined with 20 wooden shacks, these filled with 100 tailors, 100 treadle sewing machines, and 150 apprentices. 
The tailor shops were interspersed with women's businesses, selling food and sex and sundries. That's why it was called Happy Corner. (laughs) The tailors, who were all men, preferred to call it Taylor's Alley. And I've tried to honor their preference, and I'll call it Taylor's Alley from now on. They made clothes, principally ready-to-wear trousers for men very like themselves. That's the alley. Those are the trousers. Those were bell bottoms. (laughs) They had a particular place to play in life in Monrovia at that time. And here are a couple of apprentices. The tailors and their customers had come to Monrovia from farming communities upcountry and uh, uh, negotiated the city at its peripheries where Viangola people lived and worked in ways that kept strong continuities with their former lives. Shortly after arriving in Monrovia for the first time, Before I knew that the Taylor's Alley existed, I spent my days in a Vi tailor shop not far from the alley. At the end of two weeks, I could see that the tailors were skillfully engaged in their work and that apprentices who had spent different amounts of time there were different from each other, some more and some less skillfully engaged. There was abundant evidence that learning was going on but I couldn't see it happen. There weren't any classes, no designated teachers among the masters, and no time set aside during the day for anything like tutorials. Still uncritic, did I tell you I didn't have any theoretical clarity when I set out on this project? Watch this. Still uncritically steeped in assumptions about learning should be schooling, Um, I thought maybe I did not understand how to be in the right place at the right time. So I asked one of the masters, who had a young apprentice, to show me how he taught him. Obligingly, he gave a lesson. He stood over his small apprentice, who was sewing buttons on a pair of trousers, gave a monologue on the work to be learned, and a running commentary on the apprentice's performance. The verbal detail was extraordinary. There was no doubt that the master knew how to teach. But it didn't feel right. Even though it was what I thought I wanted to see. And I finally couldn't avoid facing up to the fact that I was pursuing the wrong issues when the master explained to his apprentice in a loud voice intended for my ears only, that the fly always goes on the front of the trousers. (laughs) I went home and wept. Even during the following year's fieldwork in Taylor's Alley, 
It was only after absorbing everyday goings-on in those tailor shops over a period of months that different sorts of questions began to seem promising. I began to see that being accepted by a master, an apprentice had legitimate access to the daily life of the tailors at work, and so open access to production processes and to the products of the tailor's work. Trousers, shirts, prayer gowns, sometimes a dozen pair of trousers being made in one day from start to finish. And very important, access to other apprentices, including beginners, those partway through their apprenticeship, and apprentices almost at the point of becoming master tailors. The combination of apprentices with different degrees of experience was itself a demonstration of the path to becoming a master tailor. Together, they were the embodied curriculum. New apprentices could witness not only the technical skills they needed to grasp, who had them, who didn't, where did you need to be in order to, to get them, but also the difficulties and struggles that other apprentices uh, were having and that they too were likely to encounter as they went along. All of this was certainly useful to the apprentices in figuring out how to engage in deepening their knowledgeable skills. In sum, it was clear that the apprentices learned ma mainly in relation with each other, especially in relations with near peers, slightly different peers. Masters were also concrete embodiments of the sort of persons the apprentices were intent on becoming. I didn't notice this for a long time, for my attention was concentrated narrowly on making detailed notes about the methods apprentices used for sewing trousers or cutting out shirt sleeves. I continued for a long time to be blind to the fact that apprentices were there not to turn themselves into sewers of trousers, but to turn themselves into master tailors. Now, I would say, these days, I would say that their skill as artisans was in fact only a small part of their eventual masterly social identities. I missed at that time a deep relational point that knowledgeable skill is always only subsumed and given meaning in complex social relations, some of them relations of personal identity making. That's part of what it means to develop theoretical notions about situated practice, situated learning, learning and practice, things I've been going on about for many years. But this wasn't all. With time, I found crucial resonances for apprentices among three series. Three series. That's, yeah. First, there was a rough order in which apprentices learned to make different types of garments. Second, this order was related to a pattern of differences among the tailor's clients, from children to young adults to older folks. And third, the types of clothes made by different master tailors, now after they became masters, 
changed over their working lives uh, at different points in their careers as they too aged. Think again about Tim Ingold's claim that skills are themselves constituted within the matrix of social relations as links in chains of personal rather than mechanical causation. Further, the tailors made clothes that required a broad and creative grasp of divisions, relations, and fashions, think of those bell-bottom trousers, in Liberian social life well beyond the shop. For the clothes they made dressed, dressed both obvious and subtle distinction, and subtle distinctions in status and style, reflecting the diverse social identities of their Liberian customers. They were, in a way, mappers in cloth of Liberian complex social relations in Liberian society. At the end of my ethnographic work, I concluded that the binary comparative theory of formal and informal education was silent about the most important characteristics of the tailor's apprenticeship, and it expected apprenticeship to be constructed in ways that, in my experience, it was not. That's a pretty strong critical conclusion, backed up by much more detail than I could possibly present today. These conclusions certainly encouraged exploration of a critical relational theory instead. But before I could get to that, I went back twice more to Taylor's Alley to carry out learning transfer experiments of my own devising, carefully grounded in my ethnographic familiarity with educational practices in the Taylor shops. I ended up comparing the Taylor's math problem-solving ingenuity from the perspective of tailoring, not just from the perspective of schooling. I found that the superior effects of schooling on the ability to generalize old skills with respect to new problems washed out when a second form of educational practice was taken seriously in constructing comparative experiments. At the end of that elaborate effort, two years' worth of work, I had done what I set out to do when I first went to Liberia. I hoped that the results of all my ethnographic and experimental work would be instructive for cross-cultural experimental researchers. I would say the results are at least mixed. Um, but some things happened. At the end, uh, but, but I myself thought the results were entirely unexciting. Whatever it was that those experiments were measuring felt trivial to me. I figured I knew the results. How could they be otherwise than what I'd started out to do, though I did it with absolutely all the rigor and care I could command? So the end of this was kind of a, one of those moments when you really go downward and say, should I quit? Is this done? 
However, <laughs> I was visited once again by the same sort of deep unease I felt as I had watched that master tailor early on teaching his apprentice. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong. That was a big part of the sense of, I don't know what, what, what should happen next. I woke up one morning, and this is not a story. It's just true. It happened. I woke up one morning with another one of those aha moments. I had never seen a tailor in a tailor shop do anything in solving quantitative problems in that shop that that tailor had done during my experiments. And I had detailed notes on every move that every tailor made on every problem in every experiment. It didn't matter either whether the tailor had in question had been to school or not been to school. There was no commonality in those efforts. So I went back to Liberia. I went back to Liberia to spend another summer in ethnographic fieldwork in the tailor shops to look closely at everyday math practices in the shops. I figured I would be able to spot math problems in the shop similar to the math problems one encounters in school or in those experiments. I wanted to compare the math practices of the tailors in two contexts as different as shop and school, uh, but now with very close attention to uh, what was going on in the shops. But I began to understand <laughs> gradually over the course of the summer that relations of number and quantity are produced not only in relation with other numbers and quantities, but also in relation to many other issues and values in everyday life. Quantity, quantitative relations only have meaning and significance as part of ongoing social practice. In the differently arranged participation uh, by tailors and experiments and in the tailor shops, there were very different sorts of engagement going on with relations of quantity. Those embodied and situated differences in math practice offered a new perspective and raised a new question. Suppose that it is not just informal education and everyday life in which knowledge and learning are situated as part of ongoing relations in particular social contexts. Suppose there isn't any other social condition. I've been supposing that ever since. It has led me to uh, join with uh, to doing other ethnographic projects and a lot of work with social theoretically sophisticated colleagues on a historical relational theory of praxis. Conclusions. I've been trying to suggest, at least, how it is possible to come around to talking about learning as a matter of changing relations between persons and their practices in a changing world. When you start with relational theory, 
with a commitment to the situated character of social practice. Your task is not to look at the person or the world one at a time, for they are a relation. Instead, the task is to look at each through the other, with respect to the other. This is a dialectical relation. Persons are changed by their participation in everyday practices. Practices change as their participants change. The notion of changing participants and changing practice, read from many different angles, is how I've come to think of learning, or maybe better, apprenticeship. Suppose we decide to inquire into the conduct of everyday life, taken to be a matter of craft, partly a matter of laying down our artisan identities in long-term practices embodied in our relations in the world with things, people, and heterogeneous changing communities of practice. To me, this frames a field of research for the study of learning if we adopt a relational theoretical perspective. It would encourage and provoke quite different analytic questions, search for illuminating facets of social life in different places, to be read for what they might tell us about learning. And I think that research practices have to be invented accordingly. They're all deeply tied with one another, of course. There is one more issue. I've talked about how a long process of critical ethnographic theoretical research has shaped my changing stance with respect to theorizing, learning, and, and knowing. I have been trying to show rather than tell throughout this talk how critical ethnographic practice works. But there is another, another missing preamble to this work. Research on artisanship as the basis for rethinking learning has uh, uh, brought front and center the political, ethical, and aesthetic implications of uh, making us thinking as uh, 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 identities laid down in close relations with our working embodied lives. And to kind of make that point clearer, I want to tell you one last story. There was a theoretical archaeology conference here at Berkeley last May. And in a session on social practice theory in archaeology, organized by Andy Roddick, one of Christine Hasdorff's former students, Belgian archaeologist Olivier Gosselin gave a paper on the intricate relations of identity-making among potters in Niger. And he, he, he talked about how this came about through the differently, differently organized facets of their craft practices. He drew deep and nuanced connections between the ways pots are produced, the life circumstances of the potters, and those around them. Outside the conference, 
there were intense conversations about the state of our universities and our distress over changing relations among research researchers, federal and corporate funders, and university administrations that embrace a neoliberal corporate transformation of the university into profit centers. Students as indebted but paying customers, commodified products of research, and escalating demands for excellence and productivity, but in abstract and quantitative terms. Olivier went back to Brussels and wrote this summer a manifesto for slow science, <laughs> which to his surprise has since gone viral and developed into the slow science movement. He didn't coin the phrase, it's at least 20 years old, begun by Australian chemists and physicists. And it has moved from the natural sciences to the humanities, corresponding more or less to the historical trajectory of research policies um, uh, focused on competitiveness and productivity. Like the slow food movement, it's like the attempt of the slow food movement to change our relations with food. Slow science is an attempt to transform our scientific practices and breathe values back into them that can deepen and enhance the quality of our lives and work. And he takes our work to be a matter of craft, apprenticeship, and artisanship. So, and I want to quote him here for just a little bit. He goes back to Richard Sennett, who I talked about at the very beginning. Senate and others, Olivier says, remind us of the intellectual elitism of the academic world that has brought about enormous confusion of values and weakened our ability to resist current managerial pressures. What criteria should we use to evaluate the quality of research? In whose name? And for what ends should such evaluations be made? On whose authority? And to these questions, we must add others about professional responsibility, finding a balance between passion and obsession, establishing closer ties with peers, and what sort of relations these should be. The example of artisanship offers us paths for getting out of this confusion. But that's not all. It also encourages greater humility in relation to other modes of experience. This seems very relevant to me, to all of us, whatever sorts of pots we make in our lives, reminding us that we have responsibilities for how we make them, how well how seriously, and with what pleasure in the process and with each other. It seems to me in today's university that we need to be thoughtful and ready to struggle to uh, 
make this way of, uh, of, of acting as scholars and teachers um, uh, the source of, 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 uh, uh, of, of the right way to do research and teaching. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I'm wondering if parenting, and I wonder if any of these apprentices were the children of the master, first of all. But then I'm starting to think, is parenting as they, can I use the word apprentice their children into family life? And whether it's subsistence farming, whether it's setting the table, even in our homes here in Berkeley, the East Bay, is that also the type of situated learning? And is parenting, when we discuss parenting, is that something different? Or could people who look at parenting apply these same theories there? Sure. Um, and the answer is yes. <laughs> Apprentice, I, I, I. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I, that is, I, 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 it is, it's, it's, it's really difficult to have a conversation about learning that uh, in a room full of folks like us that doesn't turn within two seconds into a discussion of schooling. When you start with a notion of apprenticeship, then you have the possibility of saying, could we recognize patterns in everyday life, really important parts of everyday life, like raising children, that in fact sound like maybe some of those ideas might be a way to recognize and understand and then pursue uh, thoughtfully uh, uh, the kinds of ideas we're talking about. One of my reasons for getting into this uh, kind of work has been a sense that everybody I know, um, uh, certainly everybody in this room, takes the idea of learning with deep, passionate love, I, I figure. And if we're stuck, only able to talk about learning, if it comes in classrooms with curricula and teachers and grades and exams and problems posed by teachers for others and pupils as, you know, all that apparatus of schooling, we live, we're impoverished in our ability to consider all of the kinds of activities that we engage in in all the rest of our lives, which are also matters of learning, but which it's hard to recognize and hard to talk about. So thank you for bringing that up. If I, I'm... It's still, I feel like the talk was w worth it, given that this is the talk's gone on being about apprenticeship in, in other parts of life. And do the masters, uh, let's see, their apprenticeship practices are quite different around the world. And in some cases, there are people do apprentice their children to uh, take on their children as apprentices or. Uh, relatives and so on. But in this particular situation in Liberia, there are debates. And uh, the debate goes like this. Somebody will say, well, if I apprentice my son 
to uh, 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 my, uh, his uncle, I know that the uncle will be kind and take care of him, but he won't be stern and tough on him. And if I apprentice my son to a stranger, he'll get really brought along to be under very tough standards. And so for the most part, uh, they do apprentice their children to strangers. And uh, the ones who say that's what they'll do, I could check up on, and they actually did. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.